Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome in. We're excited for another episode of the Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals podcast. We have a special guest on this episode. We're going to be speaking with Alan Killian. Alan is with WPX Energy, and WPX up in Tulsa was recently acquired by Devon. The merger date was January 7th, so they're going through the transition now. And we were really excited to talk with Alan because it's a similar situation to something we see a lot in the industry, and that is leaving a corporate position with a large oil and gas company and transitioning into your own consulting firm. And so going from a giant company to a much smaller LLC, and we're excited to dive into some of the intricacies that go along with that. It's an interesting topic because it's something that I think we're going to see a lot more in the next 10 to 20 years. The potential to run your own business is significantly easier today than it was 20, 30 years ago. And we're going to see this a lot more. And so we're excited to talk with Alan. Alan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. Well, we'll dive right in. I know Alan, I've spoke with him and I'm good friends with Alan's son, Blaine. I met him at the University of Arkansas. But for all of our listeners, Alan, we'd love to just hear a brief overview of yourself and your brief overview of your career. Great. Name's Alan Killian. Grew up native Oklahoman. Been here for quite, quite some time. Went to the University of Oklahoma, graduated from the University of Oklahoma in 1981 with a petroleum engineering degree. Subsequently went to work for City Service Oil and Gas, which immediately became Oxidale Petroleum. Spent almost 20 years with Oxy, a various locations around Oklahoma and Texas, finishing up my career with Oxy in Houston, Texas. Had a great, great time at Oxy. Numerous challenges, opportunities. Started out in pretty much the drilling completion type team, production team, very operations oriented. Through the years, moved into a marketing role and was a head of team lead of one of the commodity, specifically natural gas commodity trading side of the business. About 2000, had an opportunity to leave Houston and come back into Oklahoma working for the Williams Corporation. That was at the time of if you'll remember the big trading companies, the Enrons, the Dynagies, everybody was trying to create this massive trading organization. And so had an opportunity to come to Tulsa, was one of almost 1,200 traders on the Williams trade floor at that time, and went to work for Williams. In 2012, that was 2000, in 2012, the exploration production side of the business within Williams was spun out to its own individual company called WPX. And they took the natural gas marketing side of the business and moved that into WPX. As you can appreciate, in the early 2000s, Enron and Dynagy blew up, went away. And so that was no longer a business model. So it was much, much smaller, much tighter controls around the trading side of that business. So I went with the WPX side. In 2014, 2015, we had new leadership at WPX come in. I had the opportunity to move back into the operations side and was trying to marry my trading acumen with some of my previous operations 
and created a centralized supply chain team and subsequently had a few other roles in this last few years. But from the mid 20 teens to now was running the supply chain team. And then, like I said, some other infrastructure and health and safety, and those other type of roles. So came about, as you mentioned earlier, WPX and Devon decided to merge on January 7th. In the sense, it was time for me to really kind of step out of the business and had an opportunity to leave. And my time at WPX is very short, probably down to about the next eight, nine weeks, looks like. Congratulations on that transition. It's remarkable because it sounds like you've done so many things from risk management to marketing to operations. So in addition to the change of control, what spurred you to begin to move towards independent consulting in this next phase of your career versus trying to find another role with another company? Would you mind talking a little more about that? Sure. I think we all reach a stage of life when you want a little bit more independence. And it's like, what have you worked for? Justin, you mentioned knowing one of my sons. Blaine's one of four. I have grandchildren as well. They have spread out. Most everybody lives in different cities. I have a son in Arkansas. I have a couple of sons in Houston, Texas. I have a son here in town. The time that my wife and I would like to spend with our family is extremely important. And you try to marry that. I go back to one of the comments I made earlier about marrying my operations acumen with the trading acumen that I developed in the trading. It's very similar there as well. Is there a way to marry our desire to be around family and kids and grandkids with a business side that I'm just not ready to step aside 100%. And so it felt like that independent consulting may be the way to go. And so my wife and I talked a little bit about whether we should do this or not. I think it convinced her to say, I'm, as long as we have the power over our schedule and we can balance what we want to do, family with the consulting, then I think that's the role that I wanted to go. And so we've been in the forefront here of setting up a consulting company. And as I part ways with WPX, then that will hopefully have a few more legs underneath it. That's really interesting. It's fascinating to see the transition that the younger generation is going through. I think about my own dad and he went to Kansas State. I went to Kansas State. About 50 of our living relatives went to Kansas State. And so there was never a thought that he wasn't going to go to Kansas State. There was never a thought that I wasn't going to go to Kansas State. It was a given that he was going to move back to Kansas City. And that was where he was going to live. It was where he was going to work. And then I think about my own story and my wife, Lauren, and I, she grew up in Texas. She was in the Dallas area. Maybe she had been to the Woodlands. I had never been to the Woodlands. And we moved here several years ago and have been here ever since. And so I think this dynamic where this younger generation is moving anywhere and they truly look at a map and they're willing to go anywhere for career or lifestyle. And so I think you're going to see this type of dynamic where it's not enough to just have the job you want in whether it's Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Houston, there is such a demand to be able to have the freedom to go over to Fayetteville and see family, go down to Houston and spend a few weeks in different parts, especially as, especially as you have grandkids. And so I'd love to focus a little bit more and hear a little bit more about independent consulting. Alan, you mentioned that you've seen a few colleagues do this, go into independent consulting after their traditional career. What would you say are the biggest skills or experiences that translate to doing well when you're on your own? 
there's a magnitude of skill sets that are needed. Of course, you're only as good as your skill set. And when you're hanging a shingle out, it's how do you market yourself? But if I try to boil down the two main things that I see in my peers that have created consulting companies and have been successful, I try to look back at my career and look at what I was good at and what allowed me to maneuver through a corporation to the levels I did. I'd say it boils down into two things. The first one is listening. I think to survive, you need to listen. There was a part of the time of my career back in the early 2000s after I came to Williams, and I was on that massive 1,200-person trade floor. It was a very dynamic time in the industry. It was a very dynamic time at Williams, and you had a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom. But one of my roles was really natural gas business development type of role. And I had the ability to travel around the United States, predominantly to large customer base in the mega cities, the New York cities, the Miami, Florida's, Atlanta's, San Francisco, LA. And I was working with the local distribution companies there. But you would walk in and you really didn't necessarily have a product in mind to sell them. You spent your time listening to what their problems were. And once you listened to what their problems were, you came back and you said, how do we solve these? How can we work together to solve the problem you have? I didn't go in with knowing they had a problem. It was truly a listening type of meeting. And I think when you move into the consulting side, you're moving and you're talking to people that you may not necessarily understand where they've been or where they're going to and where they want to go. So you're trying to help them maneuver along that same pathway. To do that, you've really got to sit and listen and almost just remain silent in the sense of, let me hear what your problem is, and then I'll take that back and I will think through that. The second bucket I would probably throw in there is very, very important is networking. We can't do this on our own, okay? I can't sit in my kitchen and create a business and do this by myself. I need expertise. And having, this was year 40 for me in this oil and gas industry, been very, very fortunate of having really two companies over 40 years, 20 years, and 20 years. I think that's highly unusual. But during that time frame of working from the operations side into the marketing side and then back onto operations, my network was pretty vast. And I think that all of my consulting friends and peers, their networks are very vast as well. They may be in different buckets. I've got a friend that's gone out on consulting within the last two or three weeks. He was on the trade floor with me here at Williams. His network's tremendously different. He has the network with the big, large investment companies around the United States. He was more into finance. He was more into the treasury of WPX. And so his network's different than my network, which was supply chain and marketing was more into natural gas marketing, was more into the vendors that are in our operations. But as we move forward into hanging the ARK Consulting shingle out my door, I think you have to listen and then you're going to have to pull on your network. That's fantastic. And that it's interesting that regardless of what you're doing, listening is one of the most critical skills that you can begin to work on. It's interesting you mentioned that. Jared and I would say that the DNA of our firm, and this is kind of pulling the sheets back and getting a look under the rug here, but in our firm, the DNA of our firm it is comprised to a certain degree of a book by Patrick Lencioni. Patrick Lencioni, famous business consultant who's wrote a lot of best-selling books, but one of his books, Getting Naked, 
is the best business book I have ever read. And the quick synopsis there is listening is a skill. And when you are going into any type of business situation where you're trying to serve another person or serve another corporation, understanding who are they and what do they need and what are they looking for here is just an invaluable skill. But you have to take yourself out of it and you have to almost take your own selfishness out of it and instead be more interested in the other person than you are yourself. I think that's factual. I think the other piece within the listening side is if you sit and listen, people will talk. People love to talk about themselves. They like to talk about their family. They love to talk about their jobs. And I'm not sure that we all have, whether it's your family, your personal life, your corporation, whatever, we all have a little bit of warts, little bit of gaps throughout the entire process. We overlook those and we don't see them. But when you're articulating about your history or where we want to go, you'll probably expound on that. And if you're just sitting listening, you'll find those gaps that people need without them really articulating, saying, hey, Justin, hey, Jared, I need this. And so, like I said, listening is number one on my list. And num number two right behind it is networking because we need people. Absolutely. And I think that's such a good point, Alan, because they're the experts. They know what they need. They reached out to you for a reason. So just figuring out and get a good assessment of, hey, what do these people actually need? What questions are they asking before you're not the expert in them, they're the expert in them. And it's a lot similar in our business. People come to us because they have something they're working through and they just need a second set of eyes, a trusted opinion, somebody to delegate that to. But it's interesting because you made a good point towards the end of talking about the network. It seems like there's a lot of oil and gas consultants, but you kind of touched on something specialization. So you have a network, but different people in the profession and in kind of the consulting space have different specialties. So as you're thinking about your business, what's going to be your specialty and focal point in this space? Because there are a lot of oil and gas consultants. I think what I see and what I bring to the table is a little unique. I go back to, you mentioned, Jared, my trading days, my risk management, and those type of things. What I tried to bring to the supply chain side was a commercial negotiation that had a foundation, underlying foundation around risk management. And I think the other piece that I can bring to the table is understanding the gaps in the current supply chain and where we're headed. I think there's things such as there's a fast moving digital transformation in our business. Okay. You see it every day when you open the newspaper. That's probably antiquated. Nobody opens the newspaper anymore. You listen to the news. And McDonald's is bringing in robots now, or Domino's has a self-driving car. That transformation is fast and furious. And the oil and gas industry has always been thought of as this old antiquated dinosaur. We keep doing things the same way over and over and over. But I think there's such a move afoot right now with the ability to change things from a digital perspective or an automated perspective. And then you marry that on top of the pressures that everybody's getting from an ESP side. I saw that a little bit with one of my roles was managing the health and safety and air emissions and things like that. So trying to marry trading with my supply chain side with a little bit of ESP, I think I see some gaps, especially with maybe I could probably never walk into the big majors, the BPs, the Amicos, or the, the BP Amicos, the Exxons of the world and help them. They've got a magnitude of people but the smaller companies, I think, probably have some gaps and they're not ready to make the move as quickly. Maybe they may be ready to make the move, but they're probably not as hands-on being able to make the move into where this industry is going. 
this industry, I think, has always prided itself on changing the world. We've changed the world for the better. We've allowed fossil fuels to be stable, cheap energy. You take all the byproducts of fossil fuels and you look at the things you've got with, from the shirt you wear to the iPhone you've got in your pocket, and those are all fossil fuel derivatives. But we've never denied that we need to embrace other things such as wind and solar and hydro and balance that to give the world a cheaper, more stable energy source. And so I just think I've been in a unique position to be able to see some of these changes. I think that's so brilliant. And we talk about this a lot is having a niche and being specialized because it doesn't sound like you're going to be all things to all people. You have a very specific mid-sized company and where you really thrive is more of the supply chain risk management stuff. But what that does with your network is a consultant may specialize in something else and they have a question that's more in your alley and they send the work that way. And I think that's so brilliant specializing because it creates this collaborative environment of, hey, I'm not going to be all things to all people. In light of my experience, here's what I'm the best at. And if there's something that comes across my desk and maybe it's not a good fit, you have someone in your network who you can refer that to and vice versa. So I think that's a brilliant strategy. I think that's where we're at. And I think with the consolidation of the industry, it's just going to be less and less and less companies. There's going to be less people. And sadly, there are less of my age people that have a lot of experience. The positive side is we're turning the business over to your age. And that's awesome. That is just going to be fantastic for the industry. It's going to be fantastic for you. There's big gaps in the age difference in who's in the industry and who's leading the industry. And uh, since you have such big age gaps, you have big information and experience gaps as well. It really will be interesting to see that dynamic play out. And Alan, just like you mentioned, it's fascinating. I feel like there's not another industry that has done a worse job at PR in the sense that oil and gas has done such an unbelievable amount of good in the world. But the narrative around oil and gas can be very negative, as we know. And it's often forgotten just how much of a role the industry has played in increasing the quality of life around the globe. And the North Face video that went viral a few weeks ago, just such an excellent example of the world doesn't even realize how many products, how much of their life is dependent on this industry on a day-to-day basis. But take that a step further. The world doesn't realize just how much good has happened as a result of work in this industry. I'd love to pivot to a little bit more of a, a financial planning question just with your new venture. And that question is, what does success look like? And I'll give a quick paraphrase on that or be a little bit more specific. When you start a company, for some people, success can be, well, we need to make X amount of dollars, whether it's a big number or a small number, or success can also be, I want to work 10 hours a week and do excellent work, but I would rather make $50,000 a year and have absolute autonomy, absolute freedom, or is it, no, I want to replace my income plus some. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. What is success for you in this next step? I think I would go back to my earlier comment about work-life balance. We always try to do work-life balance. I probably got that way out of skew at a, at a young, intermediate, and probably older age. I love to come to the office. I love to be at the office. I love to be on my iPhone. So my work-life balance was probably way out of whack. I needed to go back the other way. I want it to go back the other way. So when you talk about success, having the freedom to have a role with 
a problem in the problem solving arena with a company, but being able to tell them, no, I'm on the road today with my wife. We're going, we're going to go see grandkids or no, we're going to go see some historical sites or whatever it is and making sure that I take care of the relationship side of my family, the relationship side with my wife and my friends is vital. So you gave the illustration, maybe it's working 10 hours a week or whatever. I don't know if I have a specific hours, but I want the ability to say, I don't want the work or I will get the work. Can we make sure we articulate exactly what the time frame is, is all this needs to happen? Because in the middle of all this process, I'm going to be with my wife and my kids. I'm going to be traveling. From a financial perspective, I think the thing that bothers a lot of us at our age is healthcare. With change of control, you do have the ability to have some financial wherewithal to pay for your own healthcare. But having been in a corporation for 40 years that subsidized healthcare to the nth degree, now all of a sudden it's on your plate and you're not Medicare, Medicaid eligible. You've got these gaps. And I think you're just always worried about healthcare, life insurance, and that piece of it more than, at least for me, more than just going to the grocery store and money out the door that way or buying plane tickets and flying to Florida or Europe or wherever you're going to fly. Those catastrophic elements kind of roll through your brain and go, what could happen? And so I think if you can subsidize healthcare in a sense over the next two or three or five years and go, all I'm really trying to do is create a little bigger nest egg for any catastrophic event. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because oil and gas, kind of like you said, there's a big transition going. So some of our listeners are probably, they're on the tail end of the career and some of them are just getting started. So it's a pretty wide spectrum. So for our younger folks who are probably listening and they say, man, I love what Alan was talking about, about doing the consulting thing. And maybe they want to do that a little earlier in their career. What advice do you have for somebody who would maybe want to hang their shingle earlier? And on a related note, what percentage of your WPX income do you think would have caused you to consider doing this 10 to 15 years earlier? Maybe it wasn't an income number. Maybe it was a benefit because you mentioned healthcare is really expensive. If somebody were contemplating this maybe earlier in their career, if you could go back and think about what scenario would have to happen for you to, to have done this earlier in your career, what would you say? It's a really difficult question. My guess would probably be in the 75% range of income would probably have enticed me a little bit. I think we come from being the father of four boys. All four of my boys are very similar in some of their thoughts and very diverse in some of their thoughts, as you can appreciate. But the thing I see out of my four kids, which are ages 34 to 21, versus what was in my mindset, in my soul, I came from a very, very conservative position. My kids tell me I'm conservative. I don't take a lot of risks. I go back to my supply chain side of my risk management. And I said, I'm reducing risk and eliminating risk at the most possible. I do that in my own life as well. So I was very, very comfortable, still comfortable in my own skin of being in a corporation. That's okay for me. I don't see that in my kids, I'll be honest. I mean, they have great jobs. There are, some of them are in corporations, but I see that I want that life experience. I want to get out. I want that. So that age, a person yourselves included, that's much more important. I won't, it's probably 
than it was to me. And, I, and that's hard to say that it's more important to you than it was to me because life experiences were important to us as well. It was just, I think, the risk tolerance. So I can see where your age people, my kids' age, just take the leap of faith. And I think I had one of my kids, that was actually my youngest, we were talking the other day, and he had been in a role with a corporation a little bit and wanted to do something different. And his words to me was, Dad, it's okay to fail. I don't think I had that, I'll be honest. I'm not sure I still have that. There's part of me that, no, I can't. But he's right. It's like, so what happens if you fail? Okay, you pick yourself up and you move on down the road. And so my advice to the younger generation is that if those things are deep in your soul and that's what you want, it's okay. Because time is fleeting. I mentioned before, I had 40 great years, 20 years with two different companies. But I'm also to an age that I want to go experience things. And you see the end of the horizon much closer now at my age than you do at somebody else's age. So my advice would be to, if that's in your DNA, then you need to go for it. That's great. And I'd love to hear just a little bit on the financial planning side about going through a corporate transition to our listeners. If you've read our content online, we had a lot of content on the Anadarko Oxy merger a couple of years ago. Obviously that change of control package, if you were legacy Anadarko and you were eligible for change of control, it brought a host of questions to your financial life. Alan, I'd love to hear your perspective as you go through a change of control situation, what are the biggest financial tax, estate planning, investment questions that you're thinking through? Taxes seem to be the biggest number one. You're looking at a change control package that is coming in one lump sum. And so tax strategies, especially if you've been around for decades in a company corporation, then the odds are that the tax strategy needs to be at the forefront. You're getting cash, you're getting probably you've had some deferred compensation on stock options or restricted stock or something like that that's all coming to you at one given time. I think that's the number one concern. The number two concern right behind it is, okay, now I got the cash, now what do I do with it? And you need to be able to invest that wisely. All that's going to be age-specific, all that's going to be risk-tolerance-specific, but, but I think about People my age have migrated through the corporations. Okay, you had your 401k and your 401k match and you got some deferred comp and it just kept growing year after year after year after year. And now it's all coming to you in one lump sum at church. Now what do you do with it? So I think that's the other financial piece. The third thing that's probably not or could be considered financial but may not be considered financial, I would think through is most of the non-competes, I'm assuming, with Anadarko and, and Oxy, you have non-compete issues in there. And it's like, how do I get around a non-compete and yet create this consulting company? And so we talked about listening. I think that's important early on with creating a consulting company. But when you're dealing with the change of control, I think you also need to be transparent. And so we've all had transparent conversations with our in-house attorneys, our general counsels. This is what I want to do. Now, can we make this work? And so I think you need to take that step as well. You wouldn't want to put your change control at risk. And you wouldn't want to put your consulting company at risk. You need to see if there's a marriage there. So I think taxes, investing, and then making sure that you have a process to move forward without competing and without risking anything that you've already theoretically got in your pocket. 
I love that. It's a really good framework for thinking through that. Alan, it sounds like there's been a lot, a great deal of purpose and life, and you've really enjoyed your time in oil and gas, all the various facets in which you've served. So as you were approaching retirement, did you have a specific number in mind when you thought, hey, now's the time? When did you feel, since you are very conscious of risk, how did you think about getting in a spot where you were comfortable enough to entertain retirement or reducing hours? Was it a number? Was it a number of years? Do you have any thoughts there for our listeners on how you came? And I know it's a personal decision, but I'm curious how you kind of came to that number, identify when you could do this. I think having the low, low risk tolerance, you're always looking for that next rung in the ladder of, okay, I just took that risk off the table. So I think there's always that 65 type time frame out there of now I'm eligible for the Medicare and the Medicaid's and those type of things of the world. So those are also big triggers when it comes to 401ks and all of that. I don't have penalties involved. So I think you're always looking at that. There was always a number of 55 in my head as well. And 55 was more of a lifestyle type of risk profile. Felt like maybe at 55, you're still healthy enough to do a lot of different things. So I think there's that side of it as well. There's always a piece of me because of the roles you've been in. You've been in, in roles of leadership. You've been in roles of mentoring younger people through the corporations. I'll be honest, there's always that piece of me that's wanted to go back and maybe be a high school school teacher, a high school coach. And I look at my friends that have done that, takes a lot of energy. And I don't know if I've got that energy at 65 or 62, but 55, I thought I probably did. So there were some of that balances, but what's moved me, I mentioned the low risk profile. There is some of that innate in my personality, but I've been blessed at Oxy and blessed at WPX to always have been moving through the organization in different roles and never been in a role probably more than about three or five years max. There's always been that next challenge of, hey, Alan, we need you to do this. Okay, I've got that. We'll move forward. And so you were always energized, you were always engaged. And so 65, 55, whatever number that was, almost took a back seat to, you know what? I get the next challenge and let's go for it. Let's go conquer. It makes a lot of sense. And this is something we can link in the show notes, but our last newsletter covered that topic in detail. There's so many different financial planning things to discuss from age 55 on. If you want to entertain early retirement, there's a lot of strategies to do it. But then there's also a host of tax and estate planning decisions from age 62 to 72 and tremendous opportunity to lower your lifetime tax bill with uh, proactive strategies there. So we'll link some of our resources in the show notes on that topic. Alan, I'd love to finish up with a family estate planning type question. And a lot of this comes from, I know your son, Blaine, and Blaine is someone I look up to a great deal. When I met Blaine, he was president of his fraternity at Arkansas. And Blaine is just someone who thrives at everything he does. He's excellent in his career. He's an excellent husband. He's an excellent father. And so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about passing down values as you think through, you have maybe deferred comp 401k pension. And at some point, hopefully you live for another 40 years. 
But at some point, you're going to pass down assets to your children. And so I'd love to just hear your perspective on what do you think you did well versus what is something you would change if you could do it all over again in terms of passing down values to your children? Interesting you bring that up because I just lost my father seven weeks ago. My father was a minister. I think the sitting around the living room at my father's passing, telling stories, Blaine being there, all my other boys, the one theme uh, that came out was generational blessings. And that was all passed down. I think a lot of that was passed down, starting with my father. Not me, but my father. My father instilled a lot of those values in my kids. So when I think about wealth and passing down and those values, they all have a very common purpose. And it's about God's work, God's blessing, and how do we bless others? And that's been very prevalent. And I see that tremendously in all of my boys. It's about what they do with that wealth and how do we help others? So I don't know if I did it well, but it's soaked in to my kids. And that's probably the number one and the most important value within our family. So like I said, it, it started with my parents, with my dad. And my dad was a minister 65 years. And that was who he was. And so... That's the number one thing. That's probably the value that I crave the most. I'm thrilled that they've got it in them. They're always purposeful in thinking of others. So no matter whether you've got $1 in your portfolio or $1 billion, it's about what are you going to do with it? And what we as a family, we hope to do with it is to help others. The thing I wish I probably would have done better at actually probably has to do with allowing my kids to understand the lifestyle that we lived especially over the last several years, was not the norm to the rest of the world. We were able to, we actually had this discussion with my oldest son last night. It was his birthday and we were around the table and we were thinking of things and we were talking about paying for colleges and those type of things. And, and he mentioned that he didn't quite appreciate it. The other kids have mentioned they haven't appreciated it. But what we were allowed to do, what we were able to do versus their friend set versus whatever was not the norm. And at age 18, 19, 20, they didn't understand that. And maybe we should have restructured a way to allow them to be more purposeful in understanding uh, what they had. They were blessed with what they had. And then maybe deferred what we gave them later or something. I'm not sure how we would have gone about that. But being more, a little more purposeful in allowing them to maybe participate more than what they did instead of their mother and me writing checks or providing this or providing that. So uh, they've got a great appreciation of what the value of the dollar is and what to do with it. I just think we could have been more purposeful in, in that piece. It makes a lot of sense. Thanks for that answer. There's so much that goes into that topic and it's one we love to discuss. And Alan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. It's great to hear your story and some of what's coming up. We're excited to see how the next chapter goes. And I think this could also be fun, Jared. We should do a follow-up episode where we just discuss the entire topic of what it looks like to transition from a corporate environment and head into doing your own thing. And we could probably spend 30, 45 minutes just talking about the different tax and estate planning and investment opportunities that go along with that transition. So we might do that in the coming months. 
Yeah. And we'll need to have Alan back on the podcast a few years from now to see how things shook out and whether expectations were met or how things were different than expected or similar. But Alan, we, thank you for so much for being on the podcast. Really inspired by your story. I think you're a good example of retiring well. We see a lot of people who want to leave a job, but they don't know what they have in their next season. And it sounds like you have an exciting passion for helping the next generation of oil and gas professionals and your family. So we're really inspired by that and in your desire for generosity and multi-generational generosity. And I think that's going to serve you well in this next season. But thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.